Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I am your host, Darren McDuffie, and this episode is being brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Tonight, really good episode. We'll actually be talking about beef. Um, for those of you out there, there's a really, uh, you probably remember the commercial, Wendy's commercial, Where's the Beef? So we'll be talking a little bit about that tonight. And beef is kind of one of those things that uh, some people have a lot against the eating of animals and eating of beef in general. So tonight we'll kind of be dispelling those those myths with Nicolette Han Neiman. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Maybe I may not be, but I'm just waiting for her to call in. I think that's her on the switchboard now. But before we get into the show, I just want to make a few announcements. If you haven't gone back to last week's show, please go back. That is uh, one show that I did with Dr. Janet Rosman, and that show is If Joan of Arc Had Cancer. And really good show about dealing with dealing with cancer from a spiritual uh, point, a uh, spiritual uh, aspect. So really good show, again, to go back and listen to. As always, I'm going to remind you to please connect with me on social media so I can start building this community. I've been doing this show for three years, and I see it's steadily getting some momentum, and there's some bigger things that I have or a bigger vision for what I'd like to do in the health and wellness world. So please join my community and help me build it. If you are on Facebook, I'm on Facebook.com slash I'm the fat man. That's I-M-P like Paul, H-A-T-M-A-N. I'm the fat man. On Pinterest, it's I'm the fat man one, the number one. And then on Twitter, it's the fat underscore man. So you can find me on a number of those. If you want to connect with me on my personal page, I still have room for friends on my personal page. Just look me up. My name is Darren McDuffie, and I'm sure you can't miss the all the fat man memorabilia, and pictures that are on there. So you'll know you hit the right person uh, if you type in Facebook from Darren McDuffie, and I'm there. So great show for you tonight. Um, We have Nicolette on. I'm going to bring her on in just a few. But before I do, again, I stopped eating beef about three years ago. I just had so many stomach problems. Um, Not three years. Well, in college, I actually stopped eating beef. I had a lot of stomach problems. And then three years ago, I started to eat grass-fed beef, and I noticed that I did not have those stomach problems, so I'm really interested in doing this interview and seeing what she has to say, and I read the book from cover to cover. I actually just finished it up earlier this morning, so so it should be a great show. So let me see if this is her on the switchboard. Nicolette, is that you? Yes, it is. Hey, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, thank you. Good, and I'm pronouncing your name right, Nicolette, correct? Nicolette, and the last name is pronounced Nyman. Nyman. I'm pretty sure. I knew I was going to butcher that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of people that say it as Neiman. <laughs> yeah, but that's it's what a, I was But thinking. it's Nyman. It's actually pronounced the way it's spelled. So that makes Great. it complicated. <laughs> Great. Well, 
I read the book from cover to cover. I actually finished it up um, this morning. I think I had maybe three or four more pages, and I, I finished it up and then um, really started getting into uh, writing the questions. And the book is real, really well put together, the way that it kind of flows from one thing to the other. So a really great book, and I would really recommend anyone to that is vegetarian and wants to know a little bit more about it or those people who are out there who eat meat like I do and want to know about a little bit more about what they're eating, I highly recommend it. But I don't read bios on my show. I usually ask people what their bank background is. And can you give us a little bit of your, your background? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm originally from Michigan. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo and uh, was one of those kids who grew up spending a lot of time outside. There was a big woods and field near my house, so I kind of just grew up almost, you know, out in the fields and wood every day and went to college in, in Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo College and studied biology. And then uh, I was always really interested in environmental causes all the way through high school and college. And when I went to law school, I went to University of Michigan Law School, and when I graduated, I had the idea in my head that I I would someday work on environmental issues, but I wasn't sure how I would do that. And I, and I got involved, and I was a prosecuting attorney for a while, and then I was um, working for a law firm, and I had actually moved back to my hometown of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and was on the city council there and heard uh, a talk by Bobby Kennedy, Jr., and who is the son of the late Senator Robert F. Kennedy. And he's an environmental lawyer, and he was talking about using the law to work for the environment. And it just clicked in my mind that he was doing exactly the kind of work that I wanted to do. And so I, fairly soon after hearing that talk, I ended up uh, at the end of my city council term. I made the decision I wasn't going to run for re-election. I'd, I'd already served two terms. And I... Um, started talking with the National Wildlife Federation about working as a lawyer for them, and then I accepted a job and eventually moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and worked for National Wildlife Federation. And after I'd been doing that for about a year, I actually had the opportunity to meet Bobby Kennedy Jr. in person, and he um, offered me the opportunity to work for him in Mm -hmm. New York, and I moved there. And I started that job with the idea that I would just be doing environmental law and, you know, sort of working on stuff to protect the environment. But he kind of fairly soon told me he wanted me to work specifically on the issue of agriculture and how agricultural pollution was a big environmental problem that he was seeing all over the country, and especially pollution from really highly concentrated industrialized livestock and poultry operations. And I didn't know anything at all about the issue and was actually kind of hesitant to to um, to, t- to start doing that full-time. It sounded like I knew that that meant, you know, kind of working on manure full-time. <laughs> and I just didn't think that sounded very glamorous. And um, I was kind of hesitant. And, and Bobby very wisely said, well, go to the communities and meet these people. So I actually took a trip to Missouri and met people in a part of Missouri where there are these huge concentrated uh, hog operations. And then I took another trip down to North Carolina and met farmers and um, people living in communities with big poultry and chicken and turkey and pig operations. And I saw firsthand what the problems were. And there was, you know, really serious environmental problems and very serious uh, odor problems that was really um, 
affecting the quality of life for people. And so I decided this was something I really did want to work on, and I began doing that full-time for Bobby Kennedy out of, the, out of the New York office there, but we worked all over the country. And in that job, I also you know, was visiting a lot of farms and ranches around the United States, and I began to see how there were these very radically different ways of raising animals for food. And some of them were really environmentally friendly and provided the animals really good lives, and some of them were very environmentally destructive and really did not provide the animals an opportunity for a good life at all. So it was really very different systems. And I started working both against, you know, the big industrial model and in favor of the the more sustainable, more humane model. And in the course of that work, I met uh, Bill Nyman, who's the founder of a network of hundreds of farms and ranches around the country. And eventually, I left the job with Waterkeeper and ended up marrying Bill Nyman, moving to California, <laughs> um, and to my great surprise, um, becoming a rancher myself. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was all that all happened. I married Bill Nyman um, 12 years ago and have been living on our ranch and working on our ranch ever since then. And a lot of my time now is spent, you know, working on the ranch. We also have two young boys, so I spent a lot of time working as a mother. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of my time is spent writing and researching about livestock issues, health, human health issues, environmental issues, animal uh, treatment issues, and writing and speaking about it and just trying to make the case to the general public that we really need to change the way we're raising animals for food, both for the sake of our environment and for the sake of the animals, but also for our own health. So that's kind of what, you know, that's kind of the that's a thumbnail sketch of my life, you know, that's gotten me to this point so far. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And the, the thing that stood out to me when I, I first got your book, and I, I remember seeing you on Facebook a couple of months ago and going immediately to Amazon to look at the book, and I see that you're a vegetarian. And I'm like, what is a vegetarian doing talking about beef <laughs> with a book defending beef? Right. It's an unusual combination. And I think when people hear about my biography, it makes a little more sense, you know, because um, you, I made the decision to become a vegetarian back when I was a uh, freshman in college. And a lot of people, you know, do that at that time period, and then they, they don't keep up with it. But I but I made the decision largely because I thought it was a healthier way to eat and because I thought it was the right thing to do from an environmental standpoint. And I kept with the diet for a long time, and I'm still a vegetarian, but I no longer see things as nearly as black and white. And to me, it's really, you know, as I was kind of saying a couple of minutes ago, it's really a question of how you do things. And if you raise animals well, um, I, you know, I, it's an environmental plus. It's not a negative. And I also think it, it's very healthy food. So for me now, the only reason I stick with the vegetarian diet now is because I've been doing it for so long. It's a comfortable, it's my, it's the diet I'm familiar with and comfortable with and I've been eating this way for a long time. And I don't have any desire to eat meat. I don't, it don't um, you know, doesn't, I'm not drawn to it, but we have two young boys, as I mentioned, and, and I uh, feed them meat, uh, mostly the meat that we raise ourselves and then some other good meat that we get from good sources and um, and dairy and eggs. And they, they eat that every single day. So it's something I really believe in as part of a good health, um, especially for children. 
Yeah, I think the way you put it in the book is that you're vegetarian until you have, and I'm paraphrasing, until you have the desire to eat meat, but you don't have the desire to eat it now, which is cool. Which is cool. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's funny because I just saw a review posted a couple of days ago by another vegetarian who said that she read my book and she just thought it was a good book, but she couldn't understand why I was still a vegetarian if I believed in it so strongly. And I thought, well, you know, as someone who is a vegetarian yourself, I don't understand why that's such a hard thing to understand because if you're if you're if you're not eating meat for a long period of time, um, there are people who really crave it and who um, who want to eat it, and I think generally those people return to meat eating. Um, but there are other people who never miss it, and I think for me, I was actually one of those people. Even I remember very well in my childhood that I never particularly, you know, liked meat that much. I didn't, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't, just didn't mean anything to me either way. And there are other people um, who really strongly desire meat, and um, and I think part of that has to do with the biological differences between people, um, mm-hmm. because there's more and more research showing that. Um, a lot of different factors affect our bodies in terms of what we need and in terms of what we desire to eat and everything going, you know, going back to, you know, our, our, not just our ethnicity and our culture, um, but also even what happened to us when we were in the mother's womb, all these things affect what foods we need and what foods we crave. And so to me, I think just being a person who never, um, had that strong of a craving for meat. Once I gave it up, I never, you know, never, basically never thought about it again. So, <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of, you know, my situation. But, but that being said, um, the more I've learned about, uh, especially, you know, the book really, this book really focuses on beef. Um, the more I've learned about the role of cattle, um, on the world's grasslands and the role that they can play in sort of diversified farming operations where you have lots of different kinds of crops and animals. Um, I really believe that they are important for ecologically sustainable food production. And I've done a huge amount of research, as you know, Darren, because you just finished reading Mm -hmm. the book. The whole Mm -hmm. second half of the book really is devoted to talking about the health issues. And I spend a huge amount of time researching that because I don't consider that uh, as much of an expertise as I do the environmental issues, you know, where I've worked on it uh, full time. But I was very struck by the amount of information that supports the conclusion that meat or animal products really um, in general provide very valuable nutrients to the body that are very hard to obtain in other ways. And so um, it's really compelling to me that if you're trying to create the optimal diet, you would include certainly some animal products and um, probably some meat. Yeah, it's, it's it's strange. We were just talking about the vegetarian and the vegan, and I'm seeing a lot of people who were once vegan or vegetarian are now starting to eat meat. It's like a lot of things are changing. I did a blog post a couple of months ago where I, I said I'm a vegan because I like meat. I tried being a vegetarian for a while and this didn't agree with me and I went back to eating meat. But you see a lot of that that changing. And your book kind of opened my eyes to the role that agriculture is actually playing with the soil. But before I want to get into that a little bit later, but before we do, one of the things that 
vegans and vegetarian uh, always they they tend to talk about is climate change. That's one of the factors for not eating beef or consuming livestock. Um, Let's talk about that because that was one of the chapters in your book, the whole climate change thing and how livestock uh, might attribute to that. And then if you can break that down into the greenhouse gases is what you talked about in the book, the carbon dioxide, methane, and I believe it was nitrous oxide. Right. Yeah, (laughs) I I actually uh, start the whole book with a chapter on that issue because I feel like it's come up so much in the public discussion in recent years. And the book actually almost is kind of an outgrowth of an essay that I wrote specifically on that issue for the New York Times a few years ago, uh, which was called The Carnivore's Dilemma. And in that essay, I had to, you know, explain it in you know, a thousand words, the book gave me a chance to expound on it a lot more and to research it a whole bunch more. But basically, the more I looked at it, the more I realized that it's it's been grossly oversimplified in the sort of common, you know, public discussion and the articles that you see in, in most publications. And again and again, the message is, you know, just boiled down to, well, meat and especially beef is is climate intensive and therefore the best thing to do is to reduce or to stop eating it altogether. Well, when you start looking at it in more detail, you realize pretty quickly that that is there's some truth to that argument, but there's also a lot of stuff that totally goes against it. And when you look at it much more holistically, um, I actually think it's completely untrue. Because when, when, first of all, when you have cattle on grass, you have, and about 40 to 30% of the world is grassland right now, um, depends on who's calculating, because there are different, you know, different environments, and some people would count it as a grassland and others wouldn't. But somewhere between 30 and 40% of the world is actually grass or grasslands, areas that are open areas covered mostly by grass. Now, when grazing animals are present on those lands, as they are on much of the world's uh, grasslands, actually, there's actually a whole series of biological processes that happen because you have the grazing animals that doesn't happen when you don't have them. And to sort of try to quickly explain it, basically when they're, uh, you know, sort of pruning the vegetation by eating it. It's sort of like pruning things in your garden or pruning a tree or a bush and you take, you know, parts of it off and it actually stimulates the plant to grow. And when you do that and when you have an animal um, sort of stepping on the plants, it actually increases the amount of um, sort of they call it biological activity, the sort of how much of, of the plant that goes into the soil and is consumed by the soil and it feeds the soil. The, the animal um, grazing it and stepping on the plant actually makes that happen faster and better. And all of these different impacts, and also the animal by grazing and returning the urine and the manure to the, to the soil um, through, you know, just through their bodies, that is actually very good fertilizer for the soil. So there are various different impacts that those grazing animals will have on that land that don't happen if you don't have the animals there. And there's a lot of um, good research that's been done around the world showing that having those animals there actually sequesters 
more carbon in the soil than happens if you don't have them there. Now, the big caveat to that is that you have to manage them properly, and if you don't manage them well, then you can have negative impacts. But the important point is if you do have good management of those animals and you essentially try to keep them functioning in a way that a wild herd of animals would function, then they're actually playing a really important ecological role because the earth for tens of millions of years had these huge herds of grazing animals and they were doing these all these different impacts on these grazing lands, on these big open grasslands. And those animals are mostly gone. The wild herds that once covered the earth are mostly gone today. And so grazing cattle and goats and sheep can replace can basically be the you know the proxies the substitutes for those disappeared wild animals so the argument i make in the book is that we need to improve the grazing practices and we need to have the grazing animals on grass as much as possible rather than having them in feedlots and feeding them grain there are a lot of environmental problems with doing that but when you have them on grasslands there are many environmental benefits and among them is this carbon sequestration. So when you take um, – carbon sequestration is where the plant, the grass plants, are actually taking the carbon that's in the atmosphere and getting it into the soil through the plant, through photosynthesis. So there's a lot of good um, evidence to show that having grazing animals actually will be a net benefit to the climate and mm-hmm. there are a lot of other issues that I talk about in more detail in the book about why the argument is not so simple against the grazing animals because people tend to focus on the methane issue. Um, right. But but the methane issue, first of all, there's there's potentially so much carbon that could be sequestered in the soil that it would actually more than offset all the methane. But also the methane, there's a lot of research. I just saw another study on this the other day. Um, there's a lot of research going into the question of the methane emissions from the animals because it comes from their digestive tracts and what can be done about that. And it's been shown that lots of different ways of managing the animals and even what you're feeding them and all kinds of things can reduce the methane emissions pretty dramatically. So I don't actually think that that methane question is nearly as, uh, you know, sort of unsolvable as people tend to say that it is. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge potential for grazing animals to help sequester uh, carbon. And overall, those big grasslands of the world are really ecologically important. We need them. So we don't want to have those areas being converted to croplands. And if we have the grazing animals on them, we can actually continue to keep them as grazing areas, grassland areas, and produce food from them. So there are very important reasons to have the grazing animals in the food system. And um, the climate change issue, in my view, is either much less significant than people say it is or possibly even a net positive. But the science is not, you know, done on that. That's all being, you know, researched right now. So I don't like to claim that it's going to more than offset the impact. But I think that the potential is huge as far as how much carbon can be sequestered in the soil from grazing areas. And so I think just overall, the carbon uh, emissions are going to be balanced um, by the presence of those grazing animals and the impact they're having on the soil. So I'm not a, I am not 
um, one who accepts this argument that climate change is a reason not to eat beef. Yeah. So we actually need carbon in the soil. And from what I understand from your book is that we're losing a lot of the carbon um, from the soil. Is that correct? Yeah. I didn't know until I did the research for the book how significant the problem is. Uh, and somewhere, again, you know, there are all kinds of different quantifications out there, um, and I've seen a number of them, everything from 10% to 30 or 40% of the amount that's in the soil um, has been lost since about 1850. But it, whatever it is, it's a huge amount of the carbon that's contained in the soil. Carbon is basically the living matter that's in the soil, the organic matter. And when you especially plow soil, what it does is it kind of um, exposes the soil to the air, it releases the carbon, and you, you're basically, especially because um, agriculture has gotten so dependent on agricultural chemicals and on you know just using you know whether it's um, herbicides or pesticides or fertilizers from you know chemical fertilizers, all these are things that have been shown to basically kill the living things in the soil, the biology of the soil. A lot of this is actually about the microorganisms, the little tiny things that we don't even see with our naked eye uh, that live in the soil. They turn out to be incredibly important to the life of the soil. And the soil having a really robust population of life, you know, of all different kinds of things, whether it's insects or whether it's these microorganisms, that life is actually what regenerates the soil and keeps it healthy and keeps it um, something that provides a lot of nutrition to the plants, whether those are crops that we're growing for human consumption or whether that's grass for the grazing animals, whatever it is, we want lots of life in the soil. And there's a lot of evidence that that has basically, the soil has been basically dying, you know, and it's been losing the carbon. Mm -hmm. And when you... Um, get it from the air and restore it to the soil, you're both um, improving the soil and you're reducing the climate change impact. So there, there, there's an incredibly important reason to do it. Yeah, yeah. And and getting back to the methane issue, um, because I, I didn't know anything about this. I was watching something on Facebook and I happened to click on this video and there was this guy, he he was flying a drone. I don't know if you've seen that on Facebook. He was flying a drone over this big poultry operation. And you could see the big manure pools coming from the poultry operation in your book. And I, when I watched it, I didn't know what was going on. And then when I read your book, I was like, oh, that's what it was, the, the manure yeah, pools I, and the methane. I actually have not watched the video, but I've seen it posted a bunch of times. The only reason I haven't watched it is because I've actually been – to dozens and dozens of those operations, and I've flown over them in planes. I I know what they look like, so that's why I didn't ever watch it. But I know I know the video you're talking about. It is a good video for somebody to watch if they don't know what a typical modern you know hog or poultry operation looks like, because uh, I think it's pretty shocking to people when they see it. It's not what we have in our mind when we think about a farm. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't think many people actually know about that. And, and getting back to your experience, when you were working for, what was it, Waterkeeper is what, what it was called? Yeah, Waterkeeper. Yeah, what, I mean, when you 
went to these farms. Give us an idea of what were some of the best conditions. You talked about a little bit at the beginning, but what were some of the best conditions that you saw and what were some of the worst conditions? Because I think the audience needs to get an idea of what kind of goes on in these operations. Yeah, well, the big thing that's happened is, you know, kind of starting in the middle of the 20th century, around 1950 or so, we began to really change the way animals were raised, and not just not just pigs and uh, chickens and turkeys, but also the animals that provide the eggs and the dairy products, you know, the milk, the milking cows. And basically, the difference was they used to be, you know, kind of spread out all over the country in very small flocks and herds, and then they became increasingly um, sort of bunched up into these big flocks and herds, and with almost, you know, in pretty much every species other than the grazing animals, which are the cattle and the sheep and the goats, but but for the pigs, the turkeys, and, and also the dairy cows, um, and the chickens, they were basically brought into buildings continuously. So the, so they went from kind of being outside and being in, you know, relatively small groups and spread around on a lot of different farms to being in these huge metal warehouses, basically. And so, you know, in my first book, um, Righteous Pork Shop, I talked a lot of detail about all that, how that whole transition and what that looked like. And I gave some examples. For example, a chicken flock around 1900 would have had a couple dozen birds. And then by the end of the 20th century, um, there were, you know, a a, a meat chicken operation would typically have about 100,000 birds in one metal building. And a a hen operation where you have the laying hens that lay the eggs will have over a million hens often. And they're all in these very small metal cages. And, And this is certainly a problem from an animal welfare standpoint, but it's also a huge problem from an environmental standpoint because you have so much of their manure, their waste, that is in one place, and that tends to get into the air. It gets into the water, the groundwater, and the, the, the lakes and the streams and the rivers that are nearby. And that that's basically the work I was doing at Waterkeeper is um, fighting against that pollution. And then there's a huge problem as far as the you know, the potential safety problems with the meat and the the eggs and so forth because you have a lot of disease, um, you know, problems in those really um, crowded conditions. And uh, you have a very high rate of disease in those buildings. And so they actually began around 1950 um, continuously feeding antibiotics to the animals. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the possibility of antibiotic residue in the foods, even more importantly, you have um, the rise of antibiotic-resistant diseases within the animal populations in those places. And there's been very good research done even by the federal government showing the antibiotic-resistant um, bacteria on the meat and in the eggs themselves, so the products that we're getting in the grocery store. So that's the bad side, you know, the grim side of the animal food industry. On the other side of it, you have lots of, you know, thousands and thousands of smaller scale farms and ranches around the country where you still have animals that are being really well cared for and that are um, uh, generally in smaller flocks and herds than what you have in those big industrial operations. And they get to be outside and they get to, you know, breathe fresh air and be in the sunshine and they're, you know, they're living healthy lives and good lives. And 
and they're providing healthy food. And and those operations are generally um, a real benefit to a community. You know, one of the things I really saw when I was at Waterkeeper was you don't just have pollution problems, but you have tremendous odor that comes. Uh, I don't know if, you know, you could, if that was talked about in that video with the drone in it, but one of the biggest problems with these manure piles and manure ponds is, is the odor, um, mm. which has actually, has, I've talked to several people who actually experienced um, it so badly that they were, it caused them to vomit. I mean, it's really strong, serious hydrogen sulfide emissions and so forth. And so it's, it's, it's a very serious problem. Um, when you go to a, a, a farm that's raising animals in really healthy environments, uh, you don't have those kinds of odors at all. And in fact, um, the community generally loves having those farms there and the neighbors love the farming operation next door to them. So it's a totally different um, way of raising animals and it has very different results, you know, both ecologically and in terms of the kind of food it produces. Yeah, I used to live in Sacramento way long time ago, and I remember we used to go by Stockton. We used to always call it Stinky Stockton because they had the cows there, and you could kind of smell uh, the cows. But um, I always remember that. Um, from yeah, I mean, whenever you have animals confined, a lot of animals together, and you have their manure. Basically, it's the manure that causes the smells and the, and the urine. And mm-hmm. it's going to be in these either big piles, depending on the on the type of operation it is, or it'll be in big pools. And that is not a system that is, you know, you basically can't run an operation like that without having huge odor problems and um, and pollution problems. It's not a sustainable model, and it's and it's not a model that enhances a community. It is it is a problem for a community. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, grass and importance of grass because I thought that that was um, one of the eye-opening things when I was reading a book about how important grass is to the soil. Um, with yeah. respect to uh, it's, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this right. I already slaughtered your name, but glomulin is one of the things that. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually, it's a fairly new word that was created by some scientists that work for the Department of Agriculture in 1996, and I'm not sure how they pronounce it, but I call it glomalin. And um, and I did interview uh, one of the scientists who's been one of the researchers on it, but I did it by email, so I don't know. I don't know how it's pronounced <laughs> correctly either. But glomalin is is something. All of this stuff is fairly new in terms of our understanding of it. It's been there for millions of years, but humans are just beginning to understand it. So glomalin, I was talking before about the importance of the life in the soil, the soil, the biology of the soil, the living things that are in the soil. Well, glomalin is one of these aspects of this. It's part of this whole sort of life that's there. And basically what it is is it is a substance that covers the roots of certain plants and especially been found to be very present on the roots of grasses. And grasses have, depending on the species of grass, there are 11,000 different species of grass. So there's a huge diversity within the family of grass plants. And I actually say in the book, and I believe this is true, that it's probably the most important plant in the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. We don't think about grass very much, but it is incredibly important for the ecosystems of the world and for the food system. And so among these 11,000 species of grass, there are lots of different kinds and lots of different kinds of root systems. But in general, grass has a lot of roots below ground, 
And the on average, about 90% of the plant's growth is actually below ground. 90% of the plant itself is below ground on a grass plant. And so what's most important that's happening with the grass plants is actually below ground. Now, this root system that's below ground is um, this very sort of tangled, dense you know, mat of roots that are all, you know, sort of growing together and kind of tangled up with each other. And coating those roots that the scientists have learned in the last couple of decades, there's actually this substance called glomalin, which works together with tiny little funguses, fungi, um, mm-hmm. to engage in these microscopic exchanges that make the carbon sequestration happen. So um, glomalin is believed to sort of facilitate this and make this happen, where you actually get from the plant, the plant gets from the sunlight, um, the carbon, it comes into the plant, and then it goes down into the roots, and it actually is exchanged with the soil for things that the plant needs. So it gives the soil the carbon, and, 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 and it gets back um, things like nitrogen and phosphorus, stuff that it needs, you know, like how we need to have iron and protein, you know, to live. The plant needs those things. And so glomalin is kind of believed to be something that helps make these transactions happen. And the really interesting thing about it is it's been found that it's um, very highly present in in these um, grasslands and especially in grasslands that have a lot of native grasses, the grasses that grew there originally, not rather than the planted grasses. So um, this makes it, again, you know, kind of makes it an important goal when we think about how we make an environmentally sustainable food system that we make sure that we have a lot of grasslands, that we keep them, and that we keep them functioning properly from an ecological standpoint. And, I'm, you know, the primary argument in my book is that you need those grazing animals to have them function properly because grasslands have had grazing animals on them for, you know, for probably about 90 million years. And so if we don't have, you know, some grazing animals on them, those grasslands are either going to disappear altogether or they're not going to function properly. Yeah. Getting to that point, um, let's talk about, and and, and again, all of these names, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing them correctly, but the importance of having grazing animals, I believe that you mentioned Alan Savory. What's his name? A Savory? Yeah, Alan Savory. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Al- Alan Savory. And he kind of got this thing down to a, sci- a science about having gra- these grazing animals and the symbiotic relationship that they play with the grasslands. But he also made a big, big mistake, a huge mistake before he actually discovered this. He ended up, what, slaughtering like 20,000 elephants or so. But talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, he was a he's a very interesting figure. Um he's I think he's in his 70s now. I don't know his exact age, but I've met him a few times. He's a very vibrant and vital person and he's been working for a long time originally from Zimbabwe and um was trained as a wildlife ecologist and began working as one. And actually, at that time in Africa and in particular in that part of Africa uh where he was living, um there were a lot of places where there were um, a lot of um, what was believed to be overpopulation of a lot of big animals and especially elephants. And it was actually happening in a lot of different places that elephants were actually being shot and killed to reduce their numbers 
because it was believed um, to be important to save save the whole ecosystem and to save the land. Now, what was really interesting about Alan Savory, unlike most of the other scientists that participated in those, he's actually one who kind of by by going through this experience, he was he recommended uh, a huge um, slaughter of a culling, they call it. Um, that's kind of the euphemistic term, but the the slaughter and you know just reducing animal uh, elephant numbers. And he, by um, living through this, uh, it really was kind of changed his, the whole course of his life because he saw how they shot thousands of elephants. And that the the land on which they did that actually got worse after they reduced elephant numbers. It degraded the land by reducing the big animals, not improved it. And so it's interesting. He is sometimes criticized for having participated in that. But actually, he was just one of many, many scientists who believed that that was the right thing to do. That was kind of the consensus, actually, in the scientific community, that you had to reduce elephant numbers. And for him, it really led him to rethink the whole sort of belief that people were having that the more animals and the big animals on the land are damaging land. And what led him on this whole path that he's now been on for decades, he's been trying to figure out how do animals actually play an important role in the ecosystems and make them function well. Because as he points out again and again in his speeches and in his writing, is that you have these huge herds of, you know, during prehistoric times, and even just a few thousand years ago, you still had a lot of animals, huge herds. Um, you know, we think about the Cape buffalo and the, in the Serengeti in Africa, and you think about the huge herds of caribou in the Arctic, and you think about... Um, you know the remaining uh, bison in the in the Great Plains in the United States, but those are all just very small kind of remnants of the wild herds that once were all over the globe. And what he argues very strongly is that that impact of those big animals is absolutely essential. That you have to have those animals, and we don't have them anymore. And so he believes mm-hmm. very strongly that cattle are an essential proxy, you know, a replacer for those disappeared wild animals. So he has a very interesting biography and his life's work now, he works all over the world, is to help people restore degraded grasslands using livestock as the tool. So it's very counter, you know, to the sort of the mainstream conversation. And he's a very controversial figure because he's doing something that's so different than what, you know, the the general belief is. Um, But his um, his results are really impressive, and his his story is really uh, impressive. And he's he's the founder of something called the Savory Institute that works all over the world to help restore you know grasslands that once had um, lots of wild animals on them, and are basically turning into desert now. That's happening all over the world, and Asia and Africa and lots of parts of the world, and so and even the American West. So his argument is we have absolutely have to have the grazing animals, but we have to manage them properly. And I think he's a very credible figure, although I don't base you know my entire book on his work, but I think he's a really important part of the story. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I got from your book as well is defending that case of uh, more so defending beef like the title. But I came away with the fact that agriculture is doing more detriment to the soil than anything. 
Is that a well, fair assumption? It's a- yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I, I'm just constantly amazed when I see so much attention that's being given to to the environmental impact of um, you know of livestock and especially of cattle. And really, if you talk to people who really understand soils and understand the sort of global history of agriculture, um, David Montgomery is is, a, is one of the most um, sort of impressive people as far as telling this whole story he he he's a professor of uh i think they call it um earth and space science at mm-hmm. um I believe university of washington and uh he wrote a great book called dirt the erosion of civilizations which i quote from quite um extensively in my book he basically tells the whole story of how you know civilization after civilization just basically plowed the ground and exhausted the soil they didn't do what they needed to do to regenerate the soil and there were just a very few exceptions to this this rule but he kind of traces the whole history of agriculture um for the last couple thousand years and shows how it basically degraded the soils and caused soil erosion and you know basically caused the the fertility to disappear in the soils and he's a really big believer in the importance of having animals in agriculture to make agriculture sustainable and regenerative so i think it's really important to to look at that history and understand that history and to know that when you look at an area that is you know that's turning to desert um because there may be livestock there that doesn't mean that the livestock caused the desertification um i mean one thing that he points out and that that david dr montgomery points out in that book dirt is that many parts of the world the first thing that people did when they got to an area was they when they settled it they plowed it and they ripped up that vegetative cover that protected the ground and kept the soils healthy and alive and they raised crops and when the crops only could you know go for a few years or a decade or two and then the soil was exhausted and all the fertility was out of the soil then they would put the grazing animals on it and then mm-hmm. people would later look at that and say oh those grazing animals destroyed that soil <laughs> well <laughs> it's just not that way and so he and in fact well managed grazing like I was talking about before actually restores fertility to the soil so it there's a lot of misperceptions um around you know what who what causing what damage and um you know i i quote uh, the great agricultural you know thinker west jackson who's the founder of the land institute in kansas as saying that nothing has done more damage to the earth than the plow and i think that's a really important um quote to think about <laughs> yeah that's what i i came away with that you know agriculture is doing more to the soil than the so-called cows or you know livestock um what i wanted to touch on in the last few minutes of the show is just beef and health you have some a really good chapter on beef and health because it seems like every couple of months or so we're always confronted with this study and this being, you know, something's being passed around Facebook or Twitter or whatever saying that red meat causes cancer. There's always a study about that, and people just tend to shy away from red meat. And your book really uh, kind of explained that we're not eating more red meat. So it's not the fact that we're eating a ton of red meat, but there always seems to be something about beef in our health. Let's, let's just talk yeah, a little bit about Yeah, I think that. there are a couple of really important points on that. First of all, the studies are 
I, I talk about it in some detail in my book. Um, the studies are problematic because, for lots of reasons, and one of them is that almost none of the studies, it's very rare that studies differentiate between different types of meat. So they don't differentiate between, you know, sort of fresh, raw meat that's unprocessed compared to bologna. <laughs> you know, they'll just literally have a questionnaire saying, how much meat did you eat this week and what was it and so forth. And then even if they do differentiate between the different types of meats and how it was processed or how it was cooked, that's a whole other question to it. Um because there's really good evidence that I actually think is quite credible that shows that when you grill food, whether it's meat or vegetables, you actually do um, have some um, cancer-causing compounds um, that are on the food. So, you know, I always tell people I think grilling should be done in moderation. You know, don't be grilling every night because there definitely is some good evidence that grilled foods are um, – you know, can contribute to causing cancer. That doesn't mean meat is unhealthy, right? That's a preparation method. And same thing with processed versus fresh meat. Um, there was a vi- there were two very um, credible studies, one out of Harvard School of Public Health and one that was done by some European um, governmental agencies that actually differentiated between the different types of meat, whether it was processed meat, you know, like, again, bologna or hot dogs or sausages versus fresh meat, and they found in the processed meat category that there were associations with various health. If you were someone who only ate fresh meat, there was zero association at all with any health problems. So that suggests that the processing is really important too, the cooking, the processing, and most importantly, you almost never see, I mean, I still literally, I don't think I've ever seen to this day a study that tries to differentiate between how the animal was raised. You know, was it raised um, in a confinement operation, feeding it, uh, you know, antibiotics and other chemical byproducts, which are really routinely used in in mainstream um, animal production, or was it an animal that was given good food and allowed to live on you know, grass and be outside and have a healthy life. In my view, that's how you produce healthy food. And if you're using unhealthy methods to produce the, the you know, to raise animals, you're going to produce um, food that's of questionable safety and healthfulness. So there are a lot of problems with the studies today. I talk about it in, you know, even quite a bit more detail in the book, but those are just some of the highlights of the issues I talk about. And at the same time, there's this demographic data that you were mentioning, Darren. I mean, mm-hmm. um, in around 1900, in the United States, we actually ate more red meat than we do today. We consumed uh, more beef, more veal, more lamb, more uh, mutton. Uh, pretty much people don't even eat mutton at all anymore, but they used to eat it. You know, around 1900, it was pretty common. Um, mm-hmm. and when you add it all up, it was sig- significantly more red meat than we eat today, more eggs, Lots more animal fat, more butter, all that stuff was we consumed in a higher quantity in 1900. But about 8% of people died of heart disease at that time. Today, it's the number one killer. About 42% of Americans die annually from heart disease. And the red meat consumption is lower. <laughs> mm. Egg consumption is down. Butter consumption is way down. Whole milk consumption is way down. So just that fact alone 
to me, really calls into question this idea that you can blame it on the animal fats and the red meat in particular. So um, I agree. There's stuff coming out every week on this. But when you when you ask the, just those basic questions, you know, were the different, you know, were the um, the methods of preparation considered in the questionnaires and the surveys? Were the the ways animals were raised considered? Um, and um, whether it's processed meat or not, if you ask those basic questions, you can pretty much toss out every single one of those studies because they don't do those yeah. things. And that's really essential to the question of is this healthy food or not. Um, yeah. So I believe that um, grass-fed beef, especially, is uh, is very healthy. And it's something that contains uh, a huge amount of, um, you know, protein, obviously, but also other uh, uh, minerals and nutrients that we really need badly. And I especially uh, believe for children and for people that are getting older, those are the two most important Mm -hmm. points in your life where you really need animal food products. Yeah, you talked about protein and the need for protein for our our elderly people, but you're not totally against grains because I remember in the book you were saying something about that animals were fed grains a long time ago. You're not totally against that, but explain that viewpoint a little bit more. Yeah, well, there are different systems of raising animals all over the world and even within one community. I mean, literally, you know, the farmer down the road will do something different. Um, And what I've learned from having visited a a lot of I've been on dozens and dozens of farms and ranches over the last 15 years. And what I've learned is that depending on, you know, the the place that it that it is in the climate, um, uh, the size of the operation, uh, the amount of water that they get, you know, rainfall. I mean, there are all kinds of different factors that enter into it. it may be ecologically more sensible to feed grain at various times. And I think the evidence that grain um, is problematic for the animals or for the healthfulness of the food is not that strong. You know, I believe that the healthiest meat is totally grass-fed meat. Um, but there's, you know, basically grain-finished uh, beef is very healthy food as well, and mm-hmm. I think that the grass-fed is healthier. And what you know, what, the reason I think that grass-fed meat is uh, there's a really compelling argument for it is more the ecological side of it that I've been talking about with you this you know this last half hour. But mm-hmm. the other part of it is that you do get not just a higher level of you know ver- lots of different nutrients and better you know fat profiles, more omega threes, etc. In grass-fed beef. But what's nice about grass-fed beef is that you can be almost 100% assured that that, that uh, meat was raised without stuff that you don't want in your food, right? It was raised without antibiotics. It was raised without hormones. Um, I mean, I always say don't assume anything. Be sure and ask. But I've been on lots of grass-fed operations and none of them were using any of those things, right? So it's kind of not something that you do if you're raising totally grass-fed beef because you're doing that because you're trying to produce the healthiest possible food, and you're going to be somebody who also believes that you shouldn't do those other things, right? So there are really compelling reasons to choose a grass-fed beef if you have that option, but there's so much good in even just the sort of ordinary um, run-of-the-mill grocery store variety beef that I don't um, tell people they shouldn't eat that. Um, but I think, you know, eat uh, 
get grass-fed beef as much as you can because I think it's a better choice. Yeah, and the, the last question, I kind of say the, the best for last because you touched on this at the end of the book, and this seems to be, it's not the whole climate change, overgrazing, all the issues that you cover in the book, Defending Beef, but the it, the real issue always seems to be, should we consume animals? Should we be eating animals? And you kind of touched on that a little bit at the end of the book, and I wanted to talk about that as the last question. Obviously, as a vegetarian, you know, and someone who's been vegetarian for a long time, I don't feel that people must consume animal products or, you know, or meat. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a perfectly respectable individual choice that each person needs to make. But when I've looked at this issue, um, both uh, in terms of, you know, what is the optimal healthful diet and in terms of how do we most ecologically produce food for the world, Mm -hmm. I think animals play a very important role. And so, um, you know, I go through and talk about in the book how, um, you know, the importance of uh, soil, you know, animals in building the soil, the importance of animals in protecting, you know, protecting wildlife and and actually protecting water resources and all kinds of other things. And I also talk about this whole idea of world hunger and how do we best feed the world population. And I really believe when you look at this issue, you know, and you kind of take all these things into consideration, it's very clear that animals have a really important role. And for me, as somebody who kind of grew up, you know, out of doors and living, you know, again now for the last 12 years on a ranch and being, you know, outside and working outside every single day, um, it's it's just very sort of obvious when you look at nature that nature is very complex and it's all about the hum- the uh, animal and plant interaction. Um, you don't have stuff being grown in isolation. And nature is very complex and there's all this interrelationship between all these other things. And I think that we need to, when we think about ecological food production. We need to try to think about making it like the way nature functions and make it about animals and plants working together to produce healthy food. So the idea of eliminating animals, to me, from the food system is it doesn't make sense on a whole bunch of levels, and it just totally runs against the big-picture goal, which is having a system that functions as much as possible the way nature functions. So I think animals play a really important role. Again, humans individually, of course, should choose not to if they don't think that, you know, if they're not comfortable with it for whatever reason or don't want to. Um, But I don't think it's sensible to advocate for the elimination of animals, and I really don't think it's the, the way we should go at all. Yeah, I always think it's just an individual choice. If you want to be vegetarian, be vegetarian. If you want to eat meat, eat meat. But like your book says, eat good meat. I always call it Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always call it bad meat, booty meat. So don't eat any booty meat. Make sure you <laughs> eat meat. I'll have to uh, think about meat. that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Nicolette, thank you so much for being on. I really enjoyed the book. And um, you can pick your book up on Amazon, correct? And it's called Defending Beef. Yep, it sure is. It's on Amazon, and then the the publisher is called Chelsea Green, and they have yeah. they sell it directly as well. well. Right, and do you have your own website, correct? 
I do. It's um, Nicolette Han Nyman, which is N-I-M-A-N, Nyman.com. And the nice thing about my website is that I have a bunch of my other writings there, too. You can, you can read a lot, of, a lot of the essays I've written and so forth about these topics. So anybody who wants to learn more on any of the stuff we've discussed could go there. Cool, cool. Again, thank you for being on. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I didn't get to touch on half of the stuff, half the questions I had. I wanted to talk about <laughs> so much. It's such an interesting topic. There's so much to say, but I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today, and um, it, it was a great conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, thank you. All right, have a great night. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, all right, another show is in the bag. And like I said, I didn't even get a chance to touch on a lot of the issues. I know we kind of ran over. I wasn't supposed to keep her no more than about 40, 45 minutes, but we ran over. But this book is actually a really good book if you are looking at maybe going vegetarian, if you're looking at a maybe coming off being vegetarian, or if you just need something to support your meat eating, you're a person that eats meat and you make no bones about it. You don't want to make any apologies for it. This book is is really, really good. Um, next week, we will not have a show. I was planning on having a show, and I found out that the person that I want to have a show and does her show the same day that I do mine and actually the same time. So we're going to see if I can get her scheduled for October. The week after, we're going to be talking to Mira and Jason Calton, who I had on before, and we'll be talking about their new book, The Micronutrient Miracle. So that is really, really good book that um, they're going to be coming on and discussing. It's actually new, and we'll be talking about that uh, as well on the next show. So, again, no show next week, and then the following week we'll have the show. And then the last week of August, we're going to have a really good show with, um, God, I can't remember, Bradley, Brad, Dr. Bradley Nelson will be on. We'll be talking about the emotional code. And this is something I'm really big on. Unresolved emotions can cause illness. And we're going to talk a lot about that when Dr. Nelson comes to the show and he wrote the book, The Emotion Code or Emotional Code. can't remember the exact name of the book. But we'll be talking about that and how to resolve these issues because a lot of times little knee aches and pains and different little things that that we come up with are actually or can be attributed to different emotions that we feel, unresolved emotions like anger and guilt. So it would be really interesting uh, conversation with him. And then in um, September, what I'm attempting to do is to start doing two shows a week. So it will be Monday and Wednesday and start working on the scheduling here to start getting people on Monday and Wednesday to uh, to do the two shows. I know I've been talking about that for a long time. It's just being able to schedule people and schedule them a month out to get them in those particular slots, but really want to start doing two shows a week uh, for you. So keep following the show. Uh, thank you for tonight. Peace and love, fat man, and I'll see you same fat time, same fat channel, week after next. Thanks.